Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to my conversations with artists Salona Sagar and Erica Scorti, and writer Owen Hathaway will know, our plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers, and other cultural figures about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for any diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom, and hopefully beyond in the 21st century, through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be available for free via SoundCloud, but I would still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212, as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today I'm talking to Ty Sharney, an artist based in London, whose multidisciplinary practice, comprising performance, film, photography and installation, revolves around experimental narrative texts. Sharni creates violent, erotic and fantastical images told in a dense, floral language which reimagines female otherness as a perfect totality, set in a world complete with cosmologies, myth and histories that negate patriarchal narratives. These alternate between familiar stylistic tropes and structures and theoretical prose in order to explore the construction of subjectivity, excess and the affects of the epic as the ground for a post-patriarchal realism. Her project DC Productions, 2014-19, proposed an allegorical city of women, an experimental and expanded adaptation of Christine de Pizan's pioneering feminist text The Book of the City of Ladies from 1405, within which de Pizan builds a city for notable women drawn from a medieval conception of history, where fact, fiction and myth are blurred, and to which we'll be returning later in the programme. This non-hierarchical approach also determined the construction of the characters and narrative of DC, the collected texts were published in 2019 as Our Fatal Magic. The project was nominated for the Turner Prize last year, which she shared with Lawrence Abrahamden, Helen Kamuk, and Oscar Murillo. More on that later as well. For now, Ty, welcome to Sweet 212. Very happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, the last time we saw each other, just before the lockdown that we're all now in, was on the picket line at the Royal College of Art, where we're both employed in the Contemporary Art Practice Department. We did a show with Kyron Jockin and Annie Go about the UCU strikes. So I wondered if you could just talk a bit about your experience of precarious labour in the university arts sector and what your experience of the picket line at the RCA was like. A lot of the precarity in academia, and particularly, I think, for artists, is, is quite emotional in a way. I was a VL for four or five years, and I was really desperate to get a contract in the same way that I think many people that don't have generational wealth or don't have really kind of substantial incomes from their practices are. I'm now on a contract, and I have been for the last three or four years, and so so my situation is slightly different. But I think... It is a major issue in the UK and it has like very strong ramifications in terms of how the courses are taught, the kind of marketization of higher education and its bureaucratization means that there's a very strong emphasis on parity, which is pretty much impossible if half of your teaching body are not on the same contract as the rest of them. You know, for example, students that have a personal tutor that would be on a contract, even if they're not supposed to be flexible about, you know, changing tutorial times, you know, that happens because we are in the building, we, we are there every week. So I think there are many issues around also how the kind of parity of it exists, but also like the fundamental unfairness of when people think of zero hour contracts, I don't think many people think of these contracts that are specifically fixed term ones that last from October or September to June, which guarantee you teaching throughout the year. But often your teaching load, you know, could be quite heavy, actually. You could be quite a kind of take on a lot of the responsibilities of a course and then not be paid throughout the summer. And often that contract gets renewed in September. It's a very common practice. And I, I think it's 
even this idea that it would appeal to artists that have, you know, let's say visible or buoyant careers is not really true because it's not it's not flexible. That's the whole thing. Like people talk about it as, you know, one of the main benefits being that it's extremely flexible, but it's it's not flexible at all. So even that doesn't work. Even the kind of main reason why people, you know, like try to market it as a positive structure it isn't true. In terms of the picket lines, it's interesting, like looking back on it, that it feels a very, very long time ago suddenly um, with, you know, everything that's happening around the COVID crisis. They overlapped slightly, didn't they? I think the last day that we were all there, there was already talk about, you know, should we be out or not? I think some people started social distancing much earlier than the government miserably failing miserably to tell us when to do it did. So I think that there was already a sense that something was happening, something life-changing was going to happen with that and they they really butted up against each other there were really beautiful moments in the strike I know that that isn't the point there were the four um fights which I'm sure Kyron went over when you talked about it but to me there was also like people were also fighting about and against what's happening to arts education this kind of emphasis on assessment, on the university-type kind of structures, modules, units. And a lot has been lost, really, I think, in terms of what an art education can offer. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And again, I would point listeners towards the episode with Kyron and Annie for more on what's happened to the art schools in this country, not just in the last 10 years, but in the last 40 years or so. I'd like to move on then to talk about your background as an artist, because I know you didn't go through the formal art school route and instead had quite a varied route into art, both in terms of, sort of what work you were doing and where you were living. So maybe we could hear some more about that. I was born to quite radical hippie parents that were, um, when I was born, they had me in London because they wanted me to have a British passport, really. I'm very thankful to it until today, to be honest. But they, they decided to come and have me here so that I'd be able to travel and that the world would be open to me in that way. Uh, my parents were both Israeli citizens. Uh, my parents were living in Israel in the early 70s. My mum was an actress there. Um, my dad was a lawyer that had met um, a group of political left-wing artists, hippie kind of artists, and had started dabbling both in kind of cu- countercultural culture and also the drugs and hedonistic underpinning of that culture and had started writing these uh, radio plays in Israel that were about famous trials. So he he did one on Rosa Luxemburg's trial, one on the Spinoza trial, and one on the Chicago 7 trial as well, and I think a few others I can't really remember. So he, he was into writing, and he wrote some plays. And My mother was an actress in Israel. She was in the first uh, TV series that was ever produced in Israel. It was called Hedva and Me, about bohemian couple in a kibbutz that go and live in the big city of Tel Aviv. And my dad was a lawyer at the time, but he had started to kind of get involved with this group called the Third Eye Group, which were a very political uh, left-wing art group that made films and zines and all kinds of different cultural artifacts. So they they were both involved in this group and they decided to leave Israel before the Yom Kippur War because they could see where that country was going in terms of its ideological position with regards to Palestine and the whole region really. And they didn't want to be part of it. So they left. And that whole group left, actually. Everyone in that group left. So they traveled a bit. They went to Laos. And then they went to different places in um, Southeast Asia. And then they decided to have me in, in the UK. So they came to London. And they were involved with another group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which were a kind of offshoot of a Timothy Leary hippie mafia type group that were heavily involved in the production of LSD. And my parents had me here. And then when I was about six months, this very big LSD bust called Operation Julie happened and they left the country with me as a baby and we moved to Goa 
And that was, yeah, that was the end of uh, the West for a long time. We lived in India for 10 years. I grew up in a commune in Goa on the beach. A lot of artistic activity around me, a lot of these kind of festivals the community did every year, which were kind of strange theatre, talent show type thing. But if you can imagine with a very esoteric countercultural sensibility, there were really interesting people there. Of course, there were hippies. There were also interesting people that were on the run. You know, there were like um, some Bader Meinhof people, like not not very central characters, but like fringe Bader Meinhof people that were on the run that went to Goa. There were all kinds of like uh, lapsed um, aristocrats, you know, people that were persecuted for different reasons that had escaped to Goa. So it was quite an interesting community. Obviously, in retrospect, I have my own kind of critique of it in terms of a more late colonial narrative as well you know I think that the way they behaved I mean that whole community the western community behaved in Goa with regards to like the local uh, life sensibilities is really profoundly problematic and I don't and doesn't sit comfortably with me now at all so yeah it's a, it's a kind of complicated history my aunt was a painter as well and an artist and I grew up seeing her and other people you know like very, very invested and committed to being artists. So for me, it was always an option in the same way that some people have conversations about whether they'll be doctors or lawyers or whatever. My parents, it was like writer or artist, you know, it was always something creative. And I think that they always saw creativity in its, you know, many forms as a really fundamental, essential part of life. And it's interesting, you know, my dad passed away when I was 18 and I didn't have the opportunity to get to know him as an adult, really, if that makes sense. But he had like very strong politics and I'm sure we wouldn't agree completely politically now but I grew up with a political consciousness around me I mean it's difficult because I think there's very little to salvage from hippie culture and it's caused a lot of damage as well I think you know a lot of it has been co-opted and instrumentalized in really like depressing ways but there are also things that I do think are salvageable from it and I do feel some kind of affinity with it that's really interesting to hear about. And I'd like to hear about how you then went from there to, as an adult, your route into making art. When I became a teenager, we lived in Belgium for a few years. I mean, I think Belgium is a culturally interesting place. Like if you look at the um, its history in terms of art, design, even music, I mean, cinema, not so much, but like comic books you know there's this huge kind of cultural wealth there for a very small place and on the surface quite a conservative place as well so it was interesting to me to revisit to go back a few years ago and you know have a look around again and see things in a with different eyes a little bit but I lived I spent my teenage years there and I did start becoming I guess focused or in you know interested in an arts education from the age of 13 I tried to go to some of the art schools then. At the time, there was like a different kind of educational system there where you could start doing an arts education from high school and then seamlessly move into um, your BA. I don't think they do that anymore, but the Bozal had a high school where I went for a few months and I got bullied mercilessly and had to leave. But it was it was like an incredible place. All the kids used to like smoke cigarettes in class. It was like a really different time. Like when I think about my experience of time and culture, that feels like a different universe. So I went there for a bit and then I went to an American school as well. And I chose like art as my main thing. But I was really interested in clubbing as well. And I started going to clubs from the age of 12, maybe. And initially I, I went to gay clubs. It was in town. I met like some flamboyant looking people and they said, come with us. And they, you know, they they got us in. Uh, my best friend and I, we had the same haircut. We had like a black bob, both of us. And we, we really loved very, very outrageous fashion. So we used to kind of dress like that and just hang around town. And eventually I think someone saw that we had a kind of commonality in terms of of that way of expressing oneself. You know, said, oh, do you want to come to this club? 
called The Vaudeville on a Sunday night. And, you know, that was our introduction to club culture, really. It was the most safe, amazing environment that I've ever been in. And I think it's a real privilege to have had an opportunity to really kind of articulate my own sexuality in a safe space, but it also be appreciated. So it wasn't like shouting into the void completely. You know, it was there was a recognition of it, but it was never acted upon. And I really, really enjoyed that period. Unfortunately, my parents were freaking out that I became a bit like obsessed with nightlife. And they went to all the big clubs in Brussels, my mum and my dad's wife, and told the people that I was 14 at the time and not to let me in anymore. And then I started going to raves, which were much more dangerous than these like really lovely, you know, like gay clubs in in town. But then again, I was already around these people that a lot of the people in that scene, if I was to think about a kind of analogous scene in London, it would be like the kind of Bowery, Blitz kids, very, very over the top, very scandalous, you know, interested in like a scandalous adventure, offending bourgeois sensibilities through, yeah, just being really outrageous and making out. I don't know why, but making out was like one of our main interests in front of like square people. So I was around people that, that they were older than me. I was 14, but they were all like 18, 20, all the way to like... 35, which seemed ancient. Um, but a lot of them were fashion designers or artists. So already I found my people, this kind of subcultural scene that I felt very comfortable in. You know, I'd come to London for visits as well. I met like this really interesting flamboyant character that called himself Belly Button. He was the sound designer for The Shaman and he used to make hologram clothes. And I came to visit him when he was squatting in Limehouse. He took me out, you know, in London in, in like 91 or something. You know, it was sensational time. Felt very, very adventurous and free. I mean, maybe also being so young, I was very naive about class and gender and things like that. But it felt much less conservative than um, things feel now, which is interesting. There has been a lot of progress in other ways. But in terms of a kind of experience of a social moment... A subculture, of course, subcultural, but it felt very progressive and radical at the time. So being around these people, like, I yearned for freedom always. And I, I yearned for being in charge of what I, I never wanted to have a job. So I think, you know, being like, even before I knew what I wanted to make, I knew that being an artist was the closest thing to that in a way. And then becoming an artist. So after I finished school in Belgium, my mum moved back to Israel and I moved with her because I was 17 and like our kind of family life slightly collapsed. My mum and I were living, we'd left, we were living in another commune initially in Belgium, but we'd left that commune and my dad and his wife were spending more time in Italy. So, you know, I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do. And I have to say, you know, I only went to school from the age of 10 to 16 But like by the time I finished high school, the last thing I wanted was to go into another institution and go into university. I just wanted to know the world, you know. So I went traveling a bit and then I went, I joined my mum in Israel. But it did feel adventurous at the time as well. And it was a very different reality there. You know, it was 93 we moved there. It was like on the cusp of the Oslo agreement. And then my mum said, you have to do something with your life. I think we we agreed on photography. My dad had passed away that year. And my mum said, I I won't be able to help you in life, you know, financially. And um, I think photography was like this weird nether region because it had the promise of maybe being able to do something that was also commercial, you know, that I would maybe be able to use it as a skill in uh, my living. And I did. I became a fashion photographer first. And then... Israel, you know, in the early 90s, very small scene, Tel Aviv. And obviously, I wasn't interested in fashion photography in in a very conventional way. I was interested in it in a kind of more storytelling. I was more the face than Marie Claire. As people interested in similar things, I became friendly with artists again. 
there was a curator who did a show in a museum about fashion and art. She invited me to contribute to that exhibition. And I think she wanted me to do like a fashion story because my fashion stories were quite, call it like edgy or whatever. But I, I, I didn't. I made like an installation and that was it really. And then I was just like, I never want to take a picture again. And I think after that, I took like one, one, I did one more story and that was it. I think, you know, like having a, an MA from a good art school or a BA, at least, at the very least. But at the time, an MA, I remember someone, you know, like talking about someone who didn't have an MA as like being really extraordinary. Was met, you know, it's, it's a kind of system of consensus. The first stage of the quest is getting into a good art school, right? So if you kind of rock up and you don't have not just a good one, but none at all, and no one wanted you in any of them. It's very difficult to make a case for yourself when your work is still, let's say, in its infancy. I think, like, when your work becomes more developed, it changes. But, the you know, trying to garner support for you as a young artist without having the affirmation of an institution, you know, like, kind of validating you, it's very difficult because... You know, a lot of young artists, their work might not be there yet, but the fact that they're kind of within the system that we all recognise as being, it's ultimately a gatekeeping structure, but we all agree to it. There's a different kind of attitude. There's a kind of generosity and a desire to nurture young artists. You know, there are lots of opportunities that are there that stipulate, you know, very explicitly that you have to have graduated in the last five years so there are many things that are there to help young artists that are completely reliant on you having been to a school so that was the difficulty but very luckily for me I was friends with Pill and Gallia Collective very close friends and they were at Goldsmiths in 2001 and I parasited on their friend group you know I became part of this peer group that they were friends with, I met a lot of people. And so I did have a peer group, you know, so a lot of these first exhibitions that I was in in London, like Temporary Contemporary, they were friends of Pill and Gallia's that had all gone to Goldsmiths together that I used to hang out with. So I got invited in as well. So it wasn't, I wasn't in a vacuum. And I think that having that proximity to that peer group was really like helpful it also opened my mind and eyes to many things that I think I wouldn't have had. You know, they were very interested in specific discourses that I don't know if I would have had access to if I wasn't friends with them. So it was like quite an amazing thing to, you know, meet people like Suhal Malik and, and all these people through my friendship with Pilangania that definitely architected a way of thinking for me. But because of not having an MA and not having that like initial kind of seal of approval. I think there's always been a suspicion around my work a little bit in the art world. And being very honest here, like that suspicion could have been around the fact that I didn't have a very clear vernacular, you know, that you do get in an art school. You do get a kind of grammar, let's say, in a language, which I didn't maybe have. And maybe they could see that, and that was the problem. You know, I don't, I don't know if it was more like the kind of... A system of affirmation or uh, the kind of result of that. However it was, there was definitely a kind of distance kept. But I was very lucky that I have a desire to self-initiate many things. Also within this friend group, we were doing a lot of things together. We were friends as well. We had experiences. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like another problem with this kind of marketization and professionalization of the art world it's like it kind of eradicates all of the importance of these experiences that happen outside of art making you know that are to do with culture that are to do with your place in the world how you experience the world together the other thing is having had the upbringing I did I did know a lot like I knew a lot of films, I knew a lot of writers, I knew a lot of art. So I could kind of also go under the radar in these situations. You know, I didn't seem like an outsider, I guess. I had that privilege of 
which is a huge privilege in the art world, by the way. And I, I think I've said this before, but I do really try and maintain integrity around the fact that, I, you know, I didn't come from nothing. I had huge amounts of privilege that facilitated me becoming an artist, despite the fact that I didn't have a BA or an MA. And one of those privileges is a fluency in culture, which a lot of people learn at school when they do a BA or an MA. And I had this kind of cultural life in like very creative night gay circles. And I had that also with my parents. I would like to come on now to the DC Productions project. And as we mentioned in the introduction to the show, the starting point for this was Christine de Pizan's feminist text, The Book of the City of Ladies, originally published in France in 1405. This was something I first came across on my history degree, actually, in the medieval history course taught by a Marxist lecturer called Steve Rigby, who uh, I retain a great deal of fondness for. Once uh, asked the student why he hadn't done the reading for a seminar, it might even have been uh, when we talked about de Pizan. And the student didn't really have an answer. And Steve turned around to the seminar group and said, what do we call it when uh, somebody hasn't done the work and expects the others to have done the work for him? And there was just a stony silence. And he just said, we call it exploitation. And uh, he was uh, he was a wonderful, uh, wonderful kind of crash course in uh, everyday Marxism. So, you know, we both had differing routes to this not particularly well known, but very interesting uh, literary and historical work. So perhaps you could talk to us about how the work grew out of this de Pizan text, how it used performance and installation. You know, you also mentioned your aunt earlier, a painter called Ariella Witzer, and maybe talk about her work came into this as well. And yeah, obviously the the feminist intentions to the work. So maybe I'll start with Ariella and science fiction, let's say, because I feel like I've always had a science fiction imagination. And I think we use that word science fiction, but it could just be speculative. And I think that's quite a kind of countercultural. I mean, I guess the counterculture is split among like the Marxist materialists and the speculative, like even the political ones, let's say, forget all the ones that went to Silicon Valley and became libertarians. But let's say even the good political ones as a movement, the counterculture, or as a moment, was split along these lines of utopian, speculative imaginary and, like, material Marxism. You know, it's like a kind of Sun Ra, Black Panthers divide. So I think that, you know, the kind of fantastical potentials of art being a transformative force was how I was raised to see the world. Um, I was given a lot of science fiction to read as soon as I could read. And I was given feminist science fiction by my dad's wife, like some really awful kind of rad femme, the shore of like heteronormative, but, you know, trying not to be kind of like Pamela Sargent's The Shore of Women and these kind of old school books, but also really amazing ones too. Ultimately, I think... My aunt as well, like Ariella, her world has, you know, is populated by these androgynous, unsexed, they're not even androgynous, they're, they're like asexual, half-human, hybrid with like some kind of other civilization characters. She's also, used to t- tell me like children's stories that she'd create for me about crystal worlds, you know, like kind of weird hippie Ballardian visions. And I think that does, you know, ultimately really does inform how your own Im- imagination wanders. I think being imaginative, which is something that when I moved to London was incredibly scorned upon, actually. You know, like anything theatrical or excessive was not seen in a in a good way. So to me, that was like always interesting to me to see how I could use that as a tool. And I started reading about medieval mysticism like women mystics and uh, christian mystics during medieval times and i became really really enamored with with the writing actually and i read this book by amy hollywood called sensible ecstasy which really put in motion my thinking i think around dc semiramis dc productions as a whole like i think that was a real catalyst through reading about medieval mysticism i found 
the Christine, I came across the Christine the Pizan book and was immediately struck by this allegorical city of women as something familiar to me from science fiction. That kind of historical span of an undetermined future. So that kind of breadth was very appealing to me and compelling. You know, that's like how I think as well, is in these kind of breadths of time, which is a very science fiction way of thinking. When I first read it, I was I was disappointed because I had very unrealistic and misplaced expectations for it. I thought that it was going to be a bit like one of these Angela Di Foligno texts, you know, which is like this kind of excessive, corporal, erotic text about a kind of feminized body of Christ. You know, it wasn't like that at all. Like I thought it would have a lot of this experimental potential that exists in these medieval mystical texts and, and it's it's a straightforward text it's it doesn't have that and it also has like a lot of things that I politically don't agree with at all like there's a piousness to it there's a kind of be good to your husband type thing which obviously didn't appeal to me so much so that was that I was a bit like okay this isn't exactly what I expected but I, I really like the structure and then thinking letting it percolate a little bit you know, there's some really radical ideas in it as well, not just for its time, but like ideas that have endured within, you know, a kind of matrix of experimental culture, like the body as a building, which is, you know, something that returns really strongly in Gothic fiction as well. This kind of body, this mimesis between a body and a building. So in her city of women, the blocks of the city are women. And also... But this notion of history where someone who grew up in a village near her and Diana could be said in the same sentence, you know, this like complete blurring and indistinction between history and myth and fact and fiction. It's very appealing to me, this kind of plateau of information. If you look at it, you can kind of extract a methodology of dehierarchizing through it. Those were the things that I, I found appealing, was this kind of flattening, that history of a servant girl from the neighbouring village is as valid and relevant as, you know, like some kind of myth around a building of a city. So perhaps if you'd now like to talk about the structure of the project. I think the kind of granular material of the project are the text that I wrote. So I developed 12 characters. Initially, there were three. So the first iteration of, of the project was a performance in an installation, and the installation existed autonomously, but there was these screens inside the installation that spoke for text. And then after that, I decided that I wanted to develop this into a more... I was always interested in like the kind of affects of the epic so I, I always wanted to make a project that had duration in it and also a kind of epic sensibility so I knew that I needed to expand this project quite a lot from where it was at that point so I started working towards developing it into a 12-part performance and how I did it was that every single commission I had for about three or four years I wrote one of the characters or I made a film or I made an installation or a performance or whatever it was. I used these kind of smaller structures to generate this material. Over the course of five years, I mean, there were, yeah, there was text published in books, but also in death metal fanzines, Buried. I published three texts in there. That actually was what started me writing was Patrick Morin who produces Buried, he asked me if I was interested in writing a text for one of his editions. And I, I wrote an adaptation of Bluebeard for it called Cuba Flesh. And that ended up being, you know, the beginning of this project, really. I identified something in the writing and the visual landscape generated through the writing that I wanted to continue exploring. So over the years, yeah, it existed in many different forms as radio plays. I mean, literally any kind of medium I tried to use to almost like staking some land, you know, like a territory, really. 
this work, the installation, the performances, the totality of the work was nominated for the Turner Prize in 2019. To my slight surprise, but honour, I was assigned by Freeze to review the show at the Turner Contemporary in Margate. You were one of the kinder ones! (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I obviously I liked the work and we can talk about the critical reactions to the work. I found it very difficult to choose a winner of the Turner Prize. Obviously, I went to review the show and then lots of my friends were saying to me, who do you think is going to win? And I found it very hard to call because the works were all so different and it didn't, it almost seemed inappropriate to me to try and pick a winner. So I was delighted actually when you announced, or when the group announced that you had asked the judges to allow you to share the prize and that you'd agreed this collectively. And of course, that moment happened during the general election campaign of winter 2019. So can we maybe talk about critical reactions to the work when it was nominated, but particularly reactions in the art world to this gesture of sharing the prize? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about the Turner Prize is also what's difficult about it as someone who's nominated, which is, it's a kind of moment where people that wouldn't normally look at art do which is wonderful and has incredible beautiful moments about that as well like I was very lucky that one of the gallery assistants she would on Instagram like send me little reports of you know people encountering obviously good reports (laughs) she didn't bother to send me the bad ones which is good but you know like nice kind of messages about like people encountering the work and really engaging with it so I think you know that's like the positive side of it is that it it exposes your work to a very different kind of audience than you normally would but also what's difficult about it is that all the deep-held antagonisms around contemporary art it's like a festival of that people really go to town on hating in that moment it's a moment to hate as much as it's a moment to love let's put it that way I think there were like a couple of reviews that were so absurdly mean I wasn't prepared for that like I don't think I'd prepared myself I was disappointed by some of the reviews that were like lamenting that there wasn't performance or you know these kind of things disappointed me whatever But, you know, there were some that were just like so dehumanizing in a way, you know, like calling me stupid and silly. And, you know, I I don't think I was really ready for that level of such a kind of basic way of talking about an artwork and also not engaging with it at all. I did expect that. But the thing is that it is a real media. I hate them. I hate the media. I hate the mainstream press so much. You're not alone. I know. And I think that they are a scourge on society, personally. And it's interesting how even in this very minimal, quite softened arena, which is like the mainstream art press, I had a taste of their poison. And it's anything from like just being berated on a very kind of aggressive absurd level to being asked when we won the prize what am I going to do with this 10,000 pounds like I'm a child be like I'm wealthy see like it's a million pounds and just that kind of level of patronizing being taken out of context it's incredible to me I, I do want to tell you a little anecdote actually about the mainstream press that I think you'll enjoy and I'm sure Mark Leckie won't mind me saying this as well, but um, we were both on a BBC programme after our shows opened in Glasgow. And when we were interviewed, we were told that the show, the kind of remit of the segment was about how does one become an artist? Super vague, not interesting as a holding pattern, but whatever. Then after we were filmed, it was then decided that it would be about class and that I was representing posh people, unbeknownst to me, and Mark Leckie was representing working class people, you know, and we weren't told about this. We weren't asked these questions. I remember they took something out of an answer, like the beginning of a sentence that contextualized what I said later. And, you know, if you want to interview posh people in the art world, you can literally throw a stick in the air 
and it will probably fall on a posh person. I think the person who was narrating it said that we couldn't be more chalk or cheese. I think that that was like for me a real taste of how it operates, you know, the kind of culture of mainstream media. It's really deplorable, actually. I have opinions on this as a former mainstream media journalist and columnist. You know, I've just done one of these sessions with Owen Hathaway. We've talked about the media quite a bit. And I've said it before, but it's nice to put it on record again, that I think the overwhelming majority of British journalists, and particularly columnists, are these venal, egomaniac, self-serving, self-satisfied, smug wankers, and I hate them. I blame them primarily for the general election result of last year, their incuriosity, their unseriousness, their unwillingness to question their own ideological biases, let alone those of anyone they talk to, their institutional memory, which lasts about two weeks at a time unless it's something stupid that a Labour member has said on Facebook in 2009 in which case they never let you or anyone else forget it. I think when there's a public inquiry into the government's policy on containing this coronavirus outbreak which at some point there's going to have to be because it's increasingly clear at the point we're recording that the government has seriously fucked up the British press will have to be a big part of that inquiry. Their failure to ask any kind of searching questions until it was far too late. Their failure to realise that they are active players in a political culture, not just impassioned observers of it. Watching them all over the last, literally last couple of days, realise how badly they as an industry have fucked up has been quite interesting. But I don't think that's going to extend to them realising how far they've fucked up ever since the financial crash and the unflinching, unquestioning way they just accepted the stated need for austerity and the blame for the financial crash. You could go back further to the Iraq war. Indeed, you could go back further to the 1930s. Uh, I've recently been reminded of a poem by a writer called uh, Humbert Wolf from 1930 that just goes, you cannot hope to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist. But seeing what the man will do unbribed, there's no occasion to. And um, <laughs> we're drifting slightly off topic now, but I hate these people. I hate them. You know, the Turner Prize is a moment that you suddenly are thrust into that world. And you're thrust into it in a very unkind of protected way. I find that the type of anti-intellectualism that is like peddled by the mainstream media to be really sinister in terms of like a collective psyche. I might be deluded, but I genuinely have considered this throughout my practice. I've never ever aspired to be an artist whose work is coded. I do want my work to be intellectually rigorous and I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think they're the same thing. You know, I'd like to think that someone who enjoys other things in life could enjoy my work, that you don't have to understand like the kind of embedded coding that exists in a lot of contemporary art to be able to enjoy it. It's not about figuring it out. It's not a work that wants to be figured out. It never aspired to be. It's about a kind of affective, experiential, discursive proposal. So seeing how they kind of push that really weird kind of anti-intellectual agenda, but it's also so kind of cloaked in hypocrisy, you know, because they kind of borrow the tropes of intellectualism, but it's completely kind of empty. It's a facade, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, that was that was the not nice thing about it, was like being thrust into a culture war. I mean, I did ask for it. I wore a Tories out necklace, you know, which I, I know is provocative, but I, I wanted to wear that on the BBC. You know, I found their treatment of Corbyn and Labour, you know, there were points that I was, I felt my heart exploding with rage. I was saying towards the end of that election campaign that if Corbyn won, then the first thing I wanted to see happen was a public inquiry into the behaviour of the BBC during that election, which of course we're now not ever going to get. But the behaviour of the British broadcast media, and particularly the BBC, during that election campaign was a national scandal and at times just not befitting anything that would even call itself a democracy. I mean, I think my... I mean, there are hundreds of moments you could pick out and we're going seriously off topic, but the, the moment when the BBC covered up one of the many, many sort of Tory scandals or fuck-ups by airing a video of Boris Johnson explaining how he eats a scone... God. 
was was stuff that had happened if that had happened in Ceausescu's Romania we'd still be laughing about it I mean Juliet we're sitting now by Skype I, I, I can't even sit down remembering that because it I mean, I actually like threw something against the wall when that happened. And it, it was so mawkish and pathetic as well. Such a kind of pathetic, pathetic way of doing it. Go full fash. Don't fucking talk about scones. Well, Tom Newton Dunn, of course, did go full fash and published a neo-Nazi conspiracy theory in The Sun uh, and then unpublished it and then was just invited back onto the BBC as if nothing had happened. But anyway, we are we are going seriously off topic now. To go back a little bit, but I think that's a good, very good way of laying down the context of how delicious I found wearing that necklace. Although, you know, it was a kind of gesture, whatever... You know, it doesn't have a huge kind of meaning in the real world. But still, I wanted to have that on the BBC. And I initially, I was going to have it on a bag. But then I realised they'd be able to cut it very easily. And I thought, if I have it around my neck, there's no way that they can cut it. Yeah, the gesture was uh, was noted by me and, and many others. What have you been doing since the Turner Prize? What have you been working on? I actually have a show at the moment that's in darkness and isolation in the same way as I am at the Graz Kunstverein in Austria, which is called Tragodia, which is an exhibition that toured to a couple of places before. And it's um, a VR play with an installation. The VR play is a kind of tragedy about a family who's all women. The only child in the family dies in an accident and they decide to commit collective suicide but in a very kind of pragmatic way. I wanted to talk about my own... I think, you know, after doing a project like DC Productions, which was long, and also what was amazing about the duration of it was that it kind of also charted through an emergence of a new a kind of re-looking at feminism. So, you know, my own politics changed dramatically my my feminist politics changed dramatically from the beginning where I was like, yeah, I want to write about masturbation and blood and, you know, periods and blah, 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 to at the end, like, kind of becoming completely disillusioned with how feminism had been cannibalised by capitalism, by a kind of white feminist lean-in type project, you know, like something you get on mugs and, and really distanced itself from its political roots. So I think I was disillusioned with that at the end of the project a little bit. And also, you know, I didn't want to call it a city of women anymore as well. And I'd been hounded by TERFs, you know, I I found like the whole kind of discourse around it not super interesting anymore from finding it really like galvanising, motivating... It was my political awakening was through this project. And at the end of it, feeling a little bit bereft at what had happened to some of these ideas over those years. And and like this kind of, you know, people like Theresa May wearing like this is what a feminist looks like. No, I'm sorry, this isn't. That's what a Tory asshole looks like. I felt that there was the lack of, let's say, a mainstream feminist position to think about sectionalities was depressing to me and I didn't really want to be a voice for that anymore yeah I didn't want to be considered a voice for that if that makes sense I I am a voice for myself for feminism I hope but I didn't want to be you know like somehow folded into this yeah so like you know even even like just language thinking about the language of the project when I started it I called it dark continent And I changed that to DC because when I first encountered that term, I encountered it through Freud referring to girlhood sexuality, but then realised that how being a kind of colonial reference to Africa made me not want to use it, obviously. I started naive and then I learned a lot of that has been painful, actually, a lot of the learning has been painful because I do believe in in the kind of speculative power of the imaginary and it being something that can have a politically transformative power. I still believe in that completely. 
But I think I, I just fell out of love with the declarativeness of it and it being a outward facing form of politics. So in the project that I did afterwards, and also like even on, on a kind of more internal level, I think the DC project, the writing of it, which is the granular aspect, as I've said before, it was so exposing and so personal, a lot of the writing in it. And I, I talked about so much trauma and so much of that trauma is personal but collective. And that's the the things I want to remember about that project was like talking about sexual violence and having other women be able to relate on a personal and collect, you know, the kind of moments that that project gave to be collectively and personally understanding each other in that way was the best part of the project and is what I want to remember about it. It being a city of women, I'm not interested in anymore. Um, it being, you know, a space to kind of talk, you know, inscribe women's stories into culture, I'm not interested anymore because a lot of those gendered stories, the conditions, the gendered conditions of those stories are patriarchal. I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that anymore. You know, I don't want to kind of produce into that, if that makes sense. So I did the opposite thing, which is like, I, I looked at what, as a person in this moment, was on my mind. And like, I think I was thinking, I am still thinking a lot about about kinship, not just created, but also the horror story of the family. It talks about it as being a body horror movie. But it's not so much a critique of like heteronormative families. I didn't have a heteronormative family. You know, I, I was brought up in a commune by gay men predominantly. Then I lived with my mum, her mum, my aunt. You know, the, I wasn't around cis straight men very much, actually. So I, I can't say that, you know, it's a critique of that. It's, it's more about like what happens in close quarters, in the intimacy of other subjects, let's say. That's what I was interested in on one hand. And so much happens there, you know? It's it's such a kind of profound connection that is a kind of aberration to society as it is now. And I wanted to think about my family, about me not having children, me not perpetuating these structures. You know, once my mum and aunt pass away, I won't have anyone at all, no, no siblings, nothing. You know, that's quite probably commonplace and extraordinary, as many things are, right? Just thinking about how much we understand our place in the world through others, really. And the kind of desire to find mechanisms to extend the care and love that we, some of us, not all of us, are able to experience within these intimate spheres of family, chosen and not chosen. And how we can extend some of that beyond, you know, that sphere of the family unit or close friends and into a way of being in the world, really. Well, I think that's a really nice place to conclude our conversation. I've really enjoyed it, Ty. It's been a pleasure having you on Sweet 212 at last. I'm so happy I was able to do it, particularly now when, you know, I feel very scared and raw and it's nice to recognise our community in these moments as well. Absolutely. And we will be back with more recordings next week. I have interviews with Yasmina Sibitz, Lars Ayer and Abbas Sahedi lined up and these sessions will continue for the foreseeable future. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash sweet212. You can find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash sweet-212. You can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. You can find me at Zinoviev Letter. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thank you so much for listening. So until soon, take care. Goodbye.